Thanks, Richard. That's great. Well, first of all, can I start with two apologies? First of all, I'm getting over a fairly bad cold, so my voice may not be as clear as it, as it normally would be. The other is that I have to leave at lunchtime, or after lunch, because I've got to rush back to Oxford University to pick up a parcel of documents the Welsh Government have decided to courier to me with no 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 real advance notice beyond yesterday afternoon not sure what how many documents there are all i know is that i've got to read them and comment on them by next friday and i'm hoping the package is no thicker than that if it is more thicker than if it's bigger than that i'm going to be very upset okay <coughs> well i think my presentation does fit in with alice's in the sense that it's um it's trying to take two steps back from where the current policy world is, at least in England. And I think I want to stress that England is different from other bits, uh, even of the UK, uh, certainly different from Scotland uh, in terms of what I'm going to be talking about. Well, I suppose the argument I'm going to be making is that the model of innovation which we've developed uh, through successive governments of whatever political stripe uh, over the last 20 years has remained a very science-based technological and actually by European or OECD standards rather old-fashioned one because there are two models of innovation and they're not in they're not alternatives I mean you can have both what's interesting is that in a sense our government has decided to um, stick pretty much with with one and ignore two uh, and I'll, I'll come back to what two is about in a minute. But the traditional model is one that you'll all recognise because it's what your institution is busy doing. Uh, it's what your science departments uh, and medical departments mainly do. Um, and all of those things like intellectual capital, knowledge transfer, technology adoption um, have driven policy for a very long time. Uh, and it's been a fairly... For all the changes in funding, for all the changes in the schemes... The actual underlying sort of direction of travel of, of innovation policy in the in England or UK UK government level has been pretty consistent in terms of the story it's told. Now, obviously, that model continues, but bodies like the OECD would now argue that there's a second element, uh, and I'll come on to the second element in a second. But there are drawbacks with sticking just with model one. Model 1 plainly works great if you're in a high-tech sector or something <coughs> that's science-based. But plainly, it's of relatively limited immediate use to medium and low-tech manufacturing. And scarily, that actually, that's where the bulk of UK manufacturing is. Um, it's, I mean, obviously, things like aerospace, um, pharmaceuticals, traditional R&D policy works great, but in food manufacturing, it's, it's possibly less great. And of course, the vast bulk of economic activity and employment and productivity figures are generated in the service sector. And that's a huge problem, because the service sector is not necessarily as technologically driven, except perhaps by ICT. The other thing is it relies on a very elite model. It basically says innovation is what scientists do. Um, research scientists, knowledge transfer experts, senior managers, the rest of the workforce are just grateful recipients of advances made by others. And... My model of traditional innovation policy, which I think is the model that um, most ministers have in their heads whenever they think about it, is actually of someone in a white lab coat, usually a man, uh, holding uh, probably a set of tongs, a, a test tube full of something glowing, 
which is the latest breakthrough. And that's their model. And the, basically, the scientist marches out the lab with this whatever it is wonder thing and hands it over to, to, the, to the, the rest of the world. And the rest of the world, once they've worked out what to do with it, do something with it. Well, it's a lovely model, but <coughs> it's a rather partial one. And it's interesting that <coughs> in Lord Heseltine's report um, about no stone unturned, when he was looking at local economic development, he actually came out with that quote, which I think is a very reasonable one. And I think does actually encapsulate certainly what the last government believed, that um, it was all about high tech and exports to new markets. This was where our economic salvation was going to come from. But as he said, we can't ignore the performance and growth potential of the mass of business across all sectors, including construction, logistics, retail, hospitality, and health and social care. And remember what proportion of employment would be tied up in those sectors. Well, it would be massively larger than in high-tech sectors. One of the problems with high-tech manufacturing is it's very important for exports, it's very important for growth, but the actual number of people it employs as a proportion of the workforce is pretty tiny. Thanks. <coughs> now, that matters because productivity improvement across the whole economy is now desperately required. Uh, and there's a quote from Mark Carney, our beloved governor of the Bank of England, made last week. Uh, and it does seem to me that it's true. Um, if we don't produce better sustained productivity growth, then our income is not going to be able to rise and we're in deep trouble. And given that our productivity figures have slumped in the recession and are back to where they were in the early 1990s relative to other developed countries, we do have a problem. Okay, well, why might Innovation Model 2 <coughs> get us a bit closer towards solving this problem? Well, Innovation Model 2, which really, in terms of the way in which it's being researched, has been researched largely from a North European perspective. Um, the people who started thinking about this were, unsurprisingly, Scandinavian um, economists and innovation specialists. And they came up with this rather neat um, model, or two-stage model, that you can have STI-based uh, innovation, which is what we've always recognised in, in England. Or you could also have uh, DUI. You could have innovation through doing using and interacting. And my argument would be that, that up to, till now, policy, at least in England, has managed to completely ignore the second model. It said, no, 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 don't want that. All we want, need is better science. Uh, better science, better knowledge transfer, and our problems will be solved. This is a quote from a Finnish civil servant um, who run, is one of the people who runs Finland's <coughs> massive uh, innovation program. Finland has probably put more money proportionately into innovation policy than almost any other uh, country uh, that's around. It's a very much broader model of innovation. Finnish innovation is run from a Ministry of Innovation um, and one of the components within the Ministry of, uh, of Innovation's um, policy portfolio is a program called TEKES, T-E-K-E-S, uh, you can go to their website. They have many documents about the TechS program. Uh, all of them, uh, well, most of them in English, which is just fantastic. Um, but basically, their model is that you have to help organizations to adopt technology. You have to actually understand the social dimension of change. 
uh, and that technology adoption is not just about knowledge transfer, it's also about changing work, changing the workplace, changing work organisation, and that you need a much more integrated approach. Advantages of this model? Well, it addresses a much wider range of firms. It involves a much wider range of staff in the firm because one of the things it's focusing on is bottom-up process innovation. And it reflects the way actually the bulk of innovation actually happens. Most innovation is incremental. It's about process or product innovation rather than the scientist with the gleaming test tube of knowledge. Um, a lot of it happens out there in the workplace, day in, day out, as people sit down and improve how things are done, which is generally how productivity improvements happen, or what is being produced in terms of upgrading the design, the specification of the product. <coughs> and one of the successes of Scandinavia uh, has been generally their ability to produce better workplace or employee-led innovation. Now we know, because there is a lot of research about it, that a great deal of innovation in all sectors, public and private, occurs very close to the productive process. It's concerned with the shop floor, the frontline staff uh, being able, i.e. empowered and sufficiently skilled, and willing, i.e. they're motivated, they want to do this, to make incremental adjustments in quality specification, design or utility of the good or service that they're delivering. We know that that matters, and yet, on the whole, we tend to ignore it in this country. And part of our productivity problems, I think I could argue, have got something to do with that absence of concern about how things are produced. Traditional uh, innovation and productivity policy uh, documents, and Mr Osborne has promised us another uh, policy statement before the July budget on productivity. I mean, I can guess what it will say. It will say investment in infrastructure, investment in skills, which in this case will be apprenticeship and higher education because the rest of the post-19 skills budget is being cut to the point of non-existence. Um, it will be about um, science, knowledge transfer, research in universities. Um, it will be a very, very, an investment generally. It will be a very traditional narrative which we haven't you know, moved forward on much for the last 30 years. Well, Model 2, <coughs> as I've suggested, really underpins some enormous successes. Because if you look, look at the Nordic economies, they're extremely high-waged. There is very, very little low-paid work in Norway or Sweden or Denmark. Um, it's really, really far lower. The proportion of the workforce that's employed on less than two-thirds uh, average income is very small. Uh, even what we would regard as low-wage jobs are extremely um, costly to do. And one of the implicit policies of at least some of the governments, Norway's in particular, has been, in fact, to try and, rather like Singapore, tax or legislate out of existence low-paid low work. So, for example, uh, last year the Norwegian government um, put in place a sectoral minimum wage for the cleaning industry, which is equivalent to £16 an hour. Um, because the Norwegians decided that it was really rather stupid to have people being very badly paid uh, and not really working productively in cleaning uh, and therefore <coughs> cleaning work was going to have to be professionalised, pay rates would rise 
the use of technology would rise, the way in which the work was organised would change, and the use uh, and and it would become a very different setup. But if you look across the Scandinavian economies, what do you see them actually relying on? Well, quite a lot of things that are medium tech at best. Forestry and forestry equipment, agricultural machinery, fish farming, um, fertiliser production, fish food manufacturing, specialist shipbuilding, furniture design, uh, and so on. It's not necessarily based on massively high tech. And so the quote from Lundval et al., and Lundval was one of the first people to really investigate um, the success of Scandinavian innovation systems, was to note that the Danish system uh, is really quite wealthy, but it's built on one of relatively um, low technology sectors. And it was also plain to the Danes that, and to many of the other Scandinavians, that low technology sectors will carry on being extremely important um, for exports and for employment. So we really need to think harder about traditional sectors and <coughs> service sectors rather than simply fixating on the idea of cutting edge technology and cutting edge sectors. Policy initiatives, well, Scandinavians have put in place really substantial publicly supported infrastructure to help organisations redesign their workplace, undertake organisational development, job redesign, redesigning production processes, adopting technology. What's interesting is that this is delivered usually with partial public subsidy um, through higher education institutions who often have specialist workplace innovation units to go out and help. Uh, also other education institutions at which cater for sub-degree level uh, training and also actually some private sector firms um, and consultancies which are also engaged in being supported to help firms to change what they do. Access to these <coughs> programs is not a blanket access. Firms have to apply <coughs> to the relevant government ministry or whoever's funding it. Uh, not everyone gets funded. You have to be able to show willingness uh, and actually a capacity to change before you get the money. But I suppose it is important to emphasise that none of this is taking place uh, in a vacuum. <coughs> it exists within a labour and product market environment where, where routes to low skill, uh, low pay work are being cut off, as, as I've suggested. Um, you've got strong trade unions, high wages and associated social provision costs. And also a general cultural expectation that firms will not screw their workers into the ground, but that they will actually treat their workforce as a source of competitive advantage. And it's a different model in terms of what you can and cannot do to the people you employ. So given a need to compete, you know, that your costs are high, you need, most firms need to compete on quality or product service. That means there's a strong incentive to firms to deploy workers' skills to maximum effect, all workers, not just the management or the R&D department, and that you need to keep on innovating as a means uh, of survival. Now, we know in the UK that the way we um, configure our workplaces and work organisation and job design is extremely um, suboptimal if you want mode to innovation, bottom-up, employee-led innovation to flourish. We, we really don't uh, use most of our workforce well. Um, and 
The following slides come from a <coughs> an entertaining um, survey undertaken by Microsoft of UK office workers. It's not a rigorous piece of, acad uh, of academic research, but I think you'll get the flavour of life in an office and see how many of the figures ring true to you. Okay, the average office worker, most of you are a kind of office worker, um, work for 90,000 hours uh, at work. Process-driven tasks dominate many workers' lives. 71% thought a productive day in the office meant clearing their emails. Uh, anyone recognise that syndrome? Hmm, I wonder. 51% of 18 to 25-year-olds believe that attending internal meetings signifies productivity. You've got a lot to learn, 18 to 25-year-olds. No, it signifies usually a complete and utter waste of time. When asked what... This is, a, this is the one that's scary. When asked, when was the last time you felt you made a major contribution to your organisation, 23% responded that they believed they'd never managed this. Only 8% thought they'd made a major contribution in the last year. You again might want to ask yourselves that very question and work out what you think the answer is. Only one in seven felt inspired by their jobs. 22% agreed that I, am typic I typically am not excited by my work it's just something that I do. And in terms of innovation, well, 45% said they had less than 30 minutes a day to think without distractions. 41% didn't feel empowered to think differently. 42% did not think they had the opportunity to make a difference at work. 38% said, well, things are process-driven and I spend very little time in doing things differently or being innovative. Now, if you organise work in that way, then bottom-up innovation is not going to happen very much. And there is a lot of rigorous, <coughs> though rather less entertaining, uh, research on UK work organisation that shows that on the whole, huge swathes of our workforce have very little job discretion, very little task discretion, and are not able to engage in the kinds of activities that would support mode to innovation. And also that we are quite distinctive amongst European countries on this. Now we know from a lot more research that's been done by colleagues of mine uh, in the world of vocational education and training and of work organisation that configurations of work organisation, job design and people management will support, if you design them correctly, better on-the-job learning through things called expansive learning environments, better skills utilisation, more workplace innovation, potentially higher levels of productivity. So if you get all the ducks in a row, you can actually produce significant gains. The problem is that we're not very good at that. <coughs> if we wanted higher levels of workplace learning and innovation, then we would need what are called discretionary learning workplaces. This comes from a huge European Foundation um, survey European Foundation for the work for, for Working Life, which is based in Dublin. It's one of the Europe, European Union's uh, major observatory, research observatories. They, tip, they have a model of different kinds of workplaces, and the ones they say support workplace learning and innovation are those that are discretionary learning workplaces. Now, obviously, Portugal does pretty badly. Spain does pretty badly. We don't do particularly well, but you can see the countries that do a lot better. So we've got quite a lot to learn. And what are we good at configuring our workplaces as? Is we have a lot of lean workplaces where the <coughs> space and the discretion 
for the bulk of the workforce to engage in thinking or innovation has been squeezed out. Um, when you compare our figures with the figures of most North European countries, we come out disastrously. This isn't terribly good news. <coughs> Because it means that that kind of uh, employee-driven innovation uh, is not going to happen. Uh, because in employee-driven innovation is embedded in daily work activities, social processes, and the way we configure our work organization and social processes has basically squeezed out most of the opportunity. If you want to be crude about it, innovation is something that the R&D department and senior management engage in. The workforce is there to then implement whatever ideas have been devised by someone else. Now we know what the attributes of these kinds of learning workplaces are. Uh, a huge raft of research that's been done on this and my centre, Scope, uh, published uh, a work by Michael Arrow and Wendy Hirsch in 2007. It's sitting on our website. Um, it's well worth a look, but it basically sums up within about 90 pages pretty much what we know about learning workplaces and ones that will support high levels of innovation. So you can actually create diagnostics and score a workplace relatively simply in terms of how good it will be at supporting these kinds of things. It also requires management that see a competitive strategy beyond simply cost reduction and lowest price, which is a problem in large swathes of our economy. And also, and this is where we really get into difficulties, it requires a management that believe that workers at all levels in the organisation can actually contribute. Well, a lot of British management certainly don't believe that. Uh, they believe that it's their prerogative to make up, to, to, to do these kinds of things and for workers to follow. Now, one part of the UK has broken away from this rather dreary paradigm, or at least is starting to think about it. Um, and in Scotland. <coughs> I sit on the Scottish Funding Council Skills Committee, uh, which is a joint committee with Skills Development Scotland, which is the body that runs um, apprenticeship adult training and ironically the career service as well. Scotland still has a career, uh, national career service in a way that we don't. The Scottish Government in 2007, um, when the first SNP uh, minority government got elected in 2007, decided that they had major problems with skill utilisation. They weren't using the skills that the Scottish um, government had invested in creating, not least through having a massively expanded higher education system. So they became interested in skill utilisation and in workplace innovation and what you might do to stimulate it. And this model of thinking about skill utilisation um, led to a series of policy experiments which are still ongoing in Scotland. Um, but there was a recognition by the government that the, actually you had to open up the, the black box of the workplace and intervene in it or encourage it to change if you wanted to see skills used well, particularly perhaps the skills of graduates, but also if you wanted to see uh, employee-driven innovation. And so the Scottish Government charged the Scottish Funding Council with setting up a set of skill utilisation projects. Only 12 projects, all very different, some run by higher education institutions, some by colleges, some by a consortium <coughs> using college uh, and university articulation links to um, actually cement those um, collaborations. Very modest budget, 
Um, and actually, I, I, I think the 2.9 million is actually yeah, it's a bit inflated. It actually was rather less than that, but the government decided they wanted to make it sound as though they spent slightly more on it. It really was a very small-scale thing. Range of approaches were adopted. Some of the projects were essentially about trying to ensure uh, that learning outcomes basically match what the employers needed or wanted. But very traditional employability agenda, I think most people would argue. But others were much more radical, and they actually attempted to facilitate a change inside the employer's workplace around product service innovation, work organisation, job design. So rather more like the Scandinavian model. Varying degrees of intervention in the workplace resulted, matching learning to existing jobs uh, and future-proofing, making workforce learning and capabilities visible to managers, and quite often managers do not know what skills their workforce have. They don't even know what qualifications they've got, never mind what skills, broader skills they've got. Modifying work allocation, work organisation and job design to make fully use of skills, and broader organisational development and innovation. I'll give you very quickly two examples. The first one is the really the innovative, the innovation one was Glasgow School of Art using um, creativity techniques to help vertical slices of organisations rethink processes and products. So this was a bunch of um, people who are basically industrial designers using design and creativity techniques through facilitated workshops to take groups of workers and managers from organisations in things like the tourist industry, uh, fairly low-tech manufacturing, uh, bits of the service sector, and getting them to rethink how they do things and what their product market strategies might be. All of this is written up. If you want to read about it, go to the Scottish Funding Council's website, type in skill utilisation projects, and you'll probably you'll find an evaluation paper that will cover some of this. The Open University model was very different. Uh, in Scotland, all care home supervisors and <coughs> care homes for the elderly are still mainly in local authority control. They haven't been privatised like in England. Um, <coughs> all care home managers, uh, supervisors, have to have a sub-degree level qualification and most of those were delivered by the Open University's uh, social care department. Open University had noticed that the supervisors were getting very, very frustrated because they said to their tutors, look, I've now got my massively more highly qualified and skilled than I used to be thanks to your course. The problem is my job hasn't changed. I've still got exactly the same job with exactly the same responsibilities as I had before I got the qualification, so I can't use most of the skills I've acquired. So the Open University's project was a very simple one. It was for Open University staff to go and talk to the manage, senior managers of the care homes to explain to them the new capabilities that they'd invested in their workforce through giving them a sub-degree qualification and trying to get them to understand how you might enrich and enlarge the job role of supervisors to deploy those skills. <coughs> Very simple, but actually probably quite a good idea. And in terms of the roles of coll the colleges and universities, well, what were they doing? Well, they're acting as auditors. What are the skills of the workforce and how are they being used, which a lot of managers, and certainly in smaller firms, are probably not that capable of doing in terms of auditing. They're a challenge function. Is existing practice as good as it could be? They're a catalyst for reflection and change. They're a co-designer, redesigner of the workplace and work. 
Now, all of those things are things that, if you look at the Scandinavian um, workplace development, workplace innovation interventions, would look very, very familiar. What are the lessons? Well, the lessons were that it demands a lot from college or high, higher education staff. It's not easy. There are lots and lots of my colleagues uh, in the universities I've worked in who I wouldn't want to um, wish upon an employer to help them try and change because uh, they probably wouldn't be very good at doing it. Uh, and they themselves might need to change a bit before they try. Um, so it's not for everyone. There are some people who are probably going to be good at it and some who will sink. Uh, it needs to be flexible and start with the needs of the business. It requires building up relationships and trust with employers and using their language. The outside expert coming in and telling people what to do is not a model that tends to work very well. You need to be able to offer benefits to firms up front. You've got to be able to sell this to them because it <coughs> requires their engagement, at least in terms of time. It's very labour intensive, which in a cost driven higher education system is a problem. And it depends on the interests and ambitions of the colleges and universities involved. But I think what the Scottish projects demonstrated is that it is perfectly within the capabilities of both further education colleges and universities, or at least bits of them, to engage in this activity successfully. So as a proof of concept exercise, I think the skill utilisation projects work well. What happens next on all this agenda? Well, in England, almost certainly nothing. Um, I don't want, don't want to be a clue, but uh, you know, this is based on 34 years of working in this field and Biz and its predecessor DTI, uh, they're not very keen on change actually, they're, they're one of the more path dependent organisations that I've uh, encountered. And I have to say that Biz's innovation policy does seem to be owned by scientists in the sense that scientists own it very preciously and they do not like the idea of anyone trying to change it even at the margins. I find it difficult to understand why they're quite so um, uh, sort of possessive, but I think there is a, a sort of, in their minds, uh, there is a kind of zero-sum game activity whereby new forms of innovation would, would detract from the importance of science. And it's, so innovation is science. That's their model. Anything that's not about science is not innovation. Well, in Scotland, I think things are changing. Um, the Scottish government... Um, <coughs> produced in March with interestingly no, as far as I can tell, press coverage um, uh, down here, uh, a brand new economic strategy which uh, only has two priorities, uh, growth and greater equality, uh, which is an interest. The second one is an interesting one. But Scotland is very concerned about its productivity record. It's very concerned about innovation. And if you read the government, Scottish government's economic policy, it has quite a lot to say about workplace change and about better quality work and about more productive workplaces. So the black box of the firm is, is open to investigation by Scottish policy. Uh, it follows on from something called the Fair Work Commission, which was, was undertaken by a previous um, cabinet minister from Scotland, Graham Mather. Uh, the Mather inquiry, <coughs> the report it produced, is plainly going to lead to further forms of change and there is considerably considerable interest in Scotland around workplace innovation and what it might look like. Uh, Strathclyde University got some money from um, the European Union with, with a lot of help from the Scottish Government to set up a centre to start investigating this. Uh, I suspect that you will see policy start to evolve there and certainly the Funding Council in the medium term aim to try and mainstream 
skill utilisation as an activity within their policy portfolio uh, and, and the guidance that they give to universities and colleges. So the world in north of the border, uh, as with so many things, is not only different now but likely to become more different from here, whereas I suspect we're just going to sit, uh, sit around staring at the ceiling, humming and saying why, why ever would we want to change? So there we are. Thank you very much. Oh, yeah.